Well, in the previous study in chapter 6, just last week, we concentrated on the Christian's attitude towards sin. And we learned there that when Christ died in our place, sin, our sin, died with him. Now we're dead to it and it to us. In the second half of chapter 6 and on into chapter 7, Paul talks about something else, though. Paul talks about the Christian's attitude toward the law. You might have noticed that when we read chapter 6 last week, and you might have left here saying, well, the preacher didn't even touch on that part. No, we didn't. We we skipped that completely. Uh, But we can't skip it now because it's central to chapter 7, and uh, we have to recognize what he has to say about the Christian's attitude toward the law. And so we will just a little bit. But he also talks, and we'll probably spend more time about this this morning, about the Christian struggle with both of those things. The Christian struggle with sin and the Christian struggle with the law. The latter part of chapter 7 certainly delves deeply into that. And so in both of these chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 7, we see the Christian's attitude toward sin, the Christian's attitude toward the law, and the Christian's struggle with both of those things. Now, I read somewhere... I don't remember where I read this, but I read somewhere that if you were to take the, uh, the two testaments that we have in our Bible, the Old Testament and the New, and try to say which is more important, that most people would say the New Testament stands the highest. And if you were to pick the 27 books of the New Testament and say which book in the New Testament of the 27 books would be the most important, which stands the highest, the book of Romans would bubble to the top. And then if you were to take the, uh, what is there, 16 chapters in Romans. If you were to take the 16 chapters in Romans and say, which chapter is the most important? Uh, a lot of people would say that Romans chapter 8 bubbles right to the top. It's the very mountain peak of all of the Bible. I don't know. I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I even agree with that. I just read it somewhere. And I do think it's somewhat dangerous sometimes for us to try to apply relative value to the different books of the Bible. Because the fact is, my Bible tells me that every single word of it is inspired of God. There is no book that's really more important than the other. They're all equally important to our faith. But all that being said, Romans chapter 8 is absolutely a mountain peak of Scripture. It's one of those passages that you just cannot, you, you just cannot read without shouting. And Lord willing, we're going to come to it next Sunday. Uh, it's, it's, it's just this wonderful crescendo in all of Paul's thinking. It just builds and builds and builds to this glorious conclusion. Romans chapter 8 is it's, it's a wonderful passage. I've been waiting for a long time to get to it in this study. But here's the deal. You cannot examine the glory of Romans chapter 8 until you've come to grips with the struggle in Romans chapter 7. And so we've got to talk about some more difficult things this morning as we're building up to that wonderful, wonderful, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus in Romans chapter 8. So let's look at the Christian struggle. And I want us to notice four different thoughts that Paul mentions here in, in, in chapter 7. We, we could probably spend weeks in chapter 7. We're going to try to do it all in one week. And we're going to talk about four different things that he mentions here. And the first is that we are dead to the law. Dead to the law. Now, we did mention last week that as Christians we have died to sin. You'll remember that in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 2, he said, How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And in verse number 7 of that chapter, he who has died has been freed from sin. And so we learned that. Does the fact that we died to sin mean that uh, we don't want to sin after we're saved? And of course, we had a long discussion about that. No, that's not true. Does it mean that it no longer has power or influence over us as Christians? No, certainly not. No, we learned last time that the term died to sin simply means that we're no longer under its grip. It might influence us. It might, it might be a cause of struggle with us 
We might be tempted toward it, but its ability to destroy us died on the cross. Paul gave us a visual aid in that chapter, if you recall. He mentioned the fact that believers' baptism is a picture of the very fact that we died to sin. Buried with him through baptism into death, he said in chapter 6 and verse number 4. And so we have that visual aid. Every time we baptize in this church, we're reminding ourselves of that wonderful truth. As Christians, we've died to sin. And he also made mention of the fact that there's a new you and a new me. You might remember the fact he talked about we're a new creation in Christ. Our old man, our old nature was put to death on the cross with him. And we saw that in chapter 6, verse 6. Knowing this, our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away. Well, in the second half of chapter 6, which we didn't touch on last week, he turned his attention from the Christian's attitude toward sin to the Christian's attitude toward the law. And uh, we have to talk about that because it's so important now in chapter 7. And notice it's the same truth. Just as we're dead to sin, we're dead to the demands of the law. Look at chapter 7, verse 4 that we just read. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law, to the body of Christ. Same truth. Dead to sin. Dead to the law. Verse number 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. When we died with Christ... We died also to the demands of the law, for they are all fulfilled in him. Now, I suppose we ought to define some terms. Somewhere along the line, we ought to say, what do we mean by the law? What is the law? Well, I don't think that Paul was referring to the myriad ordinances and rules that the Jewish people had piled on top of what God had defined. No, I think he was referring to the moral law of God. The moral law of God that's contained in the Ten Commandments. The moral law of God that that Jesus summed up when somebody came to him one day and asked him, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, On those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I think that's what he's talking about. And, And I don't think we would go astray. Because all 66 books of our Bible are explaining and expounding that law. I don't think we go astray at all by saying that what Paul is talking about here is the Word, the Bible. This is the law, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New. And so what Paul's saying here is that with respect to our salvation, we're dead to the law. We're not saved by trying to live up to his demands. You can't do it. You can't obey the Ten Commandments. You might think you can, but you can't do it. You can't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength every minute of your life. You can't do it. You can't love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do it. It's not possible. We can't live up to every word in these 66 books of our Bible. We can't do it. But when Christ died on the cross, the demands of the law died with him. When that great exchange took place, my sins to him and his righteousness to me, I no longer needed to try to obey the law in order to be saved. He'd already done it. And the demands of the law were dead. Now we have been delivered from the law. Having to die, having died to what we were held by. You know, you'll never see God, my friend, if you are expecting to see God because you're obeying the Ten Commandments. If you are thinking that because you're a good person, you're going to get to heaven someday. If you're thinking that because you obey or try to obey uh, the law of God, you're going to get there. Uh, you're not. 
Paul hammers this point here in Romans. And he mentions it again in Galatians when he says that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. It's evident for the just shall live by faith. So the first thing we need to recognize here today is that we're dead to the law. Its demands over us are gone. Its demands over us died with Christ because he has fulfilled every bit of it. And any attempt at salvation that we might think we're accomplishing by our good works, null and void, because we cannot obey the law. Dead to the law. The second point I want us to notice that Paul makes here is that we're informed by the law. Informed by the law. We might ask the question, okay, well, what good is it then? If we can't live up to it at all, what good is the law? And I think that may be what Paul is asking in verse number 7. If you look at verse number 7, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. I'm always struggling with that question. I'm not quite sure what Paul is asking there. Is the law sin? And I think he might be asking, uh, you know, in kind of a different way, what good is it then? If it's not a means of righteousness, if it's not a means of us being saved... What good is it? How does it differ from from any other evil thing? What is its purpose if it can't make us righteous? And if we look at verses 7 through 13, we learn that the law was given for a purpose, but it wasn't given to save us. The law was given so that we might see our sin, recognize our sin, and be drawn to the only one who can save us from our sin. Apart from the law, we are completely blind to and ignorant of sin, and so the law informs It informs us of our sin. Paul said this in Galatians chapter 3. Again, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. It taught us. It informed us of our need. Timothy Keller says the main purpose of the law is to show us the character of sin. It informs. How do we know what is right and what is wrong? How do you know? We're bombarded today from all sides with the world's beliefs about what is right and what is wrong. And basically the world's belief is that we can just define it. We can decide all on our own what's right. Matter of fact, that phrase, what's right, doesn't even have any meaning in our world today. It's replaced with what's right for me and what's right for you. There is no objective standard. And so every man does that which is right in his own eyes. And our world thinks that they're so progressive And they're so liberal and they're so uh, advanced in their thinking. Because of that, we have reached a new plateau. It's modern. We're open. We're welcoming. We're tolerant. We're inclusive. Because we don't care about what's right. We care about what's right for me. But you know, it's not a new view. It's not a progressive view. It's not a modern view. It's as old as the seventh book in your Bible. It's as old as the book of Judges. Where it's the very theme. Where every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, how do we know what is right if we don't have some objective standard? We can't say it's right for me because that might not be right for you. It might not be right for you. What is the objective standard? What is right and what is wrong? How can we possibly say that the gender confusion that is wrecking so many lives in America today and and all around the world, how can we possibly say it's wrong when those enslaved by it so loudly proclaim that it is right for them? The reason we can say it is because we have God's law. And God's law is an objective statement of truth. And it is plain what God has said about it. It is his standard. It gives us his mind on the matter. How can we get so up in arms about the horror that we read about this past week? 
How can we be so upset over the evil, wicked, despicable, vile horror that is Planned Parenthood that we saw this past week? How, how can we get so upset with what the abortion industry is all about? How can we say with absolute certainty? And as Christians, we do say this, by the way, that the value of a child's life is every bit as valuable as the value of his mother's life. How can we say that? We can say it because we have this. We have God's law. God's law is the objective standard, and it informs us of the truth of these things. And, and I can imagine some, some are sitting here this morning and saying, you know what, preacher, nobody disagrees with the value of a baby's life. What we disagree about is when that baby's life begins. And I can say to you, aha, we again have the standard. We have God's law that has informed us on this very thing. We know from the word of God, he has made it absolutely clear that life begins at conception. As a matter of fact, life begins before conception. Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed and in your book they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Before you existed in the eyes of the world you existed. Before your mother or father knew anything about you God already knew you. There's no question about it. The world can all argue all day long about when life begins. But such pontificating doesn't change the fact. God said, God has informed us of the truth in his law, in his word. And we know that it's the truth. Every time we hear somebody say, oh, did God really mean that? Our mind is whisked back to the garden, isn't it? And whisked back to the hiss of the serpent, who caused the very fall of mankind with those very words. Yea, hath God said. Did God really mean that? Yes, he did. And this is the objective standard that he has given us. We need a standard. And without a standard to tell us what is right and wrong, we have absolute chaos. We need a standard of truth. And we see that that's the purpose of the law. That's what Paul tells us here in Romans chapter 7. It informs us. It can't save us from sin, but it can inform us of sin. It tells us what God thinks about these things. That's what he says in verse number 7. He said, I would not have known sin. You see that in verse number 7? He's saying that the law defines it for us. Without the law, we wouldn't understand the definition of or the concept of or the ramifications of or the deliverances available to us from sin. We would know none of those things without the law. Paul says the only way we could know that there was a concept such as coveting, the only way we could know that such a thing displeases God is the information he's provided for us in his law. We cannot understand sin without some standard, and that standard is the law. So the law informs. Number three, we've seen we are dead to the law. We've seen we're informed by the law. Number three, I want you to notice Paul describes the frustration of the law. And this is probably the main part of this passage. The frustration of the law. (coughs) Think about this. Even though we are dead to the law, With respect to our salvation. And the law's claims over us died on the cross and we're not saved by trying to keep the law. Even though that's the case. And even though we now understand that the real purpose of the law is simply to inform us of sin rather than to provide us a means of salvation. We understand. Still, as Christians, don't we want to obey the law? 
As Christians, don't we desire to do right, to serve God, to obey the law? Not because we have to in order to be saved, but because we want to. Because we love the Lord. Because we know it's His will. You see, I think it's this desire that we Christians have, this desire to live for the one who died for us that Paul's addressing in verses 14 through 23 here, the last part of the passage. And therein, we see the frustrating reality. We can't do it. We can't do it. Even after we're saved, we can't live up to the law's demands. Do you see that there? Nobody can. Look at that. Did you, did you, did you listen as, as we read Paul's cries of frustration there? If these are the cries of the person who many people would call the greatest Christian who has ever lived, Certainly they must also apply to you. And they must also apply to me. We struggle with sin. And we struggle with living up to the law. And we will continue to struggle with it every day of our lives until the Lord calls us home. That's the reality of the Christian struggle as described here. He touched on it a little bit in chapter 6 when he talked about the old man versus the new man. He talked about it there. And now he mentions it much more expansively here in chapter 7. You see, there is a dual nature to every Christian. Two sides to all of us. Think about all the wonderful things that happened to you when you got saved. I love to think about these kinds of things. Every sinful action, every word, every thought, every deed, everyone, past, present, and future, disappeared when you got saved under the blood of Christ. What a glorious thought. When you got saved, you became a child of the King. You became a member of the royal family. You have royal blood coursing through your veins if you're a, uh, a child of God, if you're saved. You received eternal life. You received eternal health. You received eternal wealth. You obtained a purpose to live, you, a reason for your being. All of that happened when you got saved. And you gained a new nature, the new man, the spiritual you. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul says that new nature now wants to serve God and wants to obey his laws. Look at what he, he says in verse number 19. That it is now it's, it's his will. He wants to do good. He says in verse number 22, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. In verse 25, he says, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. That's the new nature he's describing there. The spiritual nature. The new man that we started to talk about in chapter 6. Mentioned in Galatians Mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. It's wonderful to think about the things that happen when you got saved, isn't it? But what about this? The other side of that. There's another fact. When you got saved, absolutely nothing happened to your body. And I can look around the room, and I can say amen to that. You can look at me and say amen to that. We're still in the same sinful, wicked, rotten body. That we were in before we got saved. Notice what Paul says here. He says in verse number 14, I am carnal. In verse number 15, what I hate, that I do. In verse number 17, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Verse number 18, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Verse number 19, the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. The verse number 21, evil is present with me. The one who wants to do good. And herein lies the struggle. The struggle that all of us as Christians deal with, our two natures do not get along. They are at war. Your new nature wants to do right. Verse 18, to will is present with me. Verse 21, I would do good. The desire is there. 
Your new nature wants it. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. You know, I think all Christians want to believe the right things. They hear the Sermon on the Mount and they say, yeah, I believe that. The new you believes it. They hear the word of God preached and they agree that it's true. They hear missionaries sing, people need the Lord. And they say in their heart of hearts, I know. I know that we're called to be witnesses. I think Christians want to faithfully live their lives. They want to live up to the requirements of the Sermon on the Mount. They want to respond to the Word of God. They want to be witnesses and testimonies. They want their lives to be in conformity to God's will. But look at this section. Here is Paul. Paul describing his desperate desire to do right. Desperate. Just as your new nature wants to do right and serve God, your old nature wants to do wrong and serve self and the flesh. He says in Galatians 5.17, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so you cannot do the things that you wish. You know you shouldn't lust, but your eyes have a mind of their own. You ought not to gossip, you know that. And yet your tongue kind of takes off sometimes. You know you ought not to listen to wicked things. And yet there are times when our ears strain to hear it anyway. We seem incapable of controlling our bodies sometimes, don't we? Our old man gets in the way. It's a Christian struggle. Now, some might be tempted to say that's not true of them. Some might be like the preacher I read about one time. The preacher was walking down a road. He happened to notice a little group of boys congregated. Ten, twelve-year-old boys. Always nothing but trouble when you see that. And so he saw these ten to twelve-year-old boys, a little group of them, and as he walked closer, he noticed there was a dog in the middle of this cluster of boys. Immediately surmising that they were up to no good and mischief, he walked up to them and he said, What are you guys doing? What are you doing with that dog? You messing with the dog? And they said, No, sir. We found this old stray and we all want to take him home. We can't decide how, how we're gonna, who's going to get to take him home. So we came up with an idea for a contest. And uh, the one who can tell the biggest lie gets to take the dog home. The preacher was aghast. He said, What? He said, you boys ought not to be having a contest about lying. Don't you know lying is a sin? And he launched into this great long sermon to them about the fact that lying is a sin. And he ended it, which he thought was on a great high note, by saying, you boys, when I was your age, I never told a lie. Silence descended over the group. And finally one of the little boys looked at the rest of them and he said, all right, he can take the dog. You know, you can deny it if you want. You can be like that guy and deny and say it's not true of you. But the fact is, Paul's struggle described in chapter 7 is your struggle. It's my struggle. The fact is, we're enslaved to and consumed by our sin nature. The fact is, our sin nature often seems to betray us. Our old bodies refuse to do what we know is right. The fact is, our sin nature, our old nature, hates God, and we have a new nature that loves Him. We have this old nature that does not seek God and a new nature that craves him. We have an old nature that can do nothing right and a new nature that in Christ can do nothing wrong. It's frustrating, isn't it? And it's a struggle, isn't it? Paul summed it up. Look at the cry. You can just feel the emotion in it. Verse number 24, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Number four, one last point. I want us to notice the deliverance from the law. So we've seen dead to the law. We've seen we're informed by the law. We've seen, uh, uh, 
what was, what was the third? Struggle with the law, and then finally the deliverance from the law. You know, there is only one way to be saved. Got to toss that out every once in a while. There's only one way to be saved. There is only one way to get to heaven. In light of recent events, it's always good for us to remind ourselves, regardless of what our politicians say, that Islam is a false religion. Allah is a non-existent God. And all those who hold to that, adhere to that, are simply going to wind up in hell. That's what the Bible says. And the same is true of Buddhism and Taoism and Shintoism and Mormonism and Judaism and every other ism. Any of them. Any faith other than evangelical, biblical Christianity is going to send you straight to hell. And when a Bible-believing Christian stands up and, and makes such a claim in our society, our society that preaches tolerance and <laughs> practices the exact opposite, there's a lot of dismay. How can you be so narrow-minded, preacher? How can you be so harsh? How can you be so intolerant? How can you be so unkind? And the fact is it would be narrow and harsh and intolerant and unkind if it weren't true. But the Bible tells me it is true. That salvation does only come through Jesus Christ. Only through faith in the person of and work of Christ. Peter said it. He said it in Acts chapter 4. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by your builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. How clear does it need to be? Nor is there salvation in any other. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way of salvation. I was watching one time a, a magic show on television. And I cannot remember anything about it except I remember this one particular act that this elderly gentleman, he had, uh, had a real thick Spanish accent, and he only had one arm. And it was one of those close-up magic shows, you know, where he was, the camera was right here, and he was right here, and he was, well, only had one hand, and he's messing around doing all this card trick. And he, all these people gather around, and their faces are right here, looking at this. And he did this amazing trick. And they were just stunned and amazed. And he said, would you like to see it a little slower? And so he did it a little slower. And they were stunned and amazed. And this went on three or four times until he was moving so slow, it was almost impossible to see how he could possibly do this. Very slowly, finally, he said, I can't do it any slower. And they were still amazed. Well, you know what? The Bible can't say it any clearer. There is only one way to get to heaven. That's, that's all there is to it. Jesus said it. Peter said it. If you're trusting in anything else, I implore you to consider the claims of Christ because it's the only way. You need to come to the cross today because it's the only way. But you say, wait a minute, Paul's not talking about salvation in chapter 7 and he's not. Not talking about it at all. He's talking about the frustration and struggle we face as Christians trying to live the Christian life. We're saved. We've trusted Christ. We've crossed that bridge. And now we have this struggle. How do we live the Christian life? And I want you to notice the answer is exactly the same. Who will deliver me? From this body of death. Verse number 25. I thank God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's only one answer. Jesus Christ. It's taken Paul seven chapters. But I, I think we can summarize what Paul has said up to this point. He has said there is no hope for you to get to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. And he has said there is no hope for you to live in a way that pleases God even after you're saved. Even if that, after you're on your way to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. He is the answer for your lostness. 
And he is the answer for your Christian walk. He's the answer for everything. Who will deliver me? That was the question. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Only Jesus can save you, my friend. And if you haven't trusted him, will you do it today? You can do it today. And only Jesus can deliver you from the struggle of the Christian life. I know that most of us in this room have trusted Christ. I know if I were to ask for a raising of hands that uh, almost every hand would go up. Yes, I'm trusting Christ as my Savior. But perhaps that group that says yes to that would say that something Paul said here hits home. That struggle. That difficulty in living the Christian life. Maybe there's some area of life that's a battleground for you. If that's the case, just as Jesus was the answer that saved you in the first place, he's the answer for that. Now, whatever it is, you need to give it to him. Whatever it is, you need to lay it at the foot of the cross. Whatever it is, you need to confess it to him. Ask him to help you. He's the answer. And he never turns anybody away.